Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Take your Bibles as we look at our third in a series of four devotionals on the Passion for Christ and turn to a passage that a friend, Mike Sullivan, called to my attention yesterday that fits in so nicely with the direction that we're going in our devotionals. John chapter 17, I want you to look at that with me. I really hadn't noticed this passage in connection with the theme of my comments, but Mike called it to my attention, and it's really more than worth pointing out, as you'll see in just a moment. John chapter 17. A time when our Lord poured out his heart in perhaps as clear and passion-filled way as he ever did. Verse 24, as our Lord is praying for For us, for all of us. He says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Ponder that phrase for just a minute. I want my people to see what I'm really like. I want my people to see my glory in a way that they're not going to see until they're out of that dismal place called fallen world. I want them to see my glory. Think who you're drawn to the most in this world. Think who, if they invited you over for dinner, you'd really be excited. Somebody you enjoy being with. And whatever the character qualities are in that person that you enjoy so much, multiply them by infinity, and that's the Lord. I want them to see what I'm like. When people see me, they can't resist me. I'm terrific. It's not boasting, this is true. I want him to see my glory, the glory you've given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, because they live in the energy of Cain, I know you, and they know that you've sent me, and I have made you known to them. Was that the central mission of Christ? I have made known the Father, and I will continue to make you known in order that what? In order that the love you have for me, as evidenced in the three times that you have burst out from heaven on my behalf, in order that the passion that you feel for me, Father, may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. That one phrase, of course, is the one I want to highlight. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known. I'm going to reveal the Father to my people, and I'm going to do that in order that they might feel for me the same passion that you feel for me, the same passion that was revealed when you shouted three times during my earthly ministry. Tomorrow morning we'll look at those three times. The rest of the week we're building up to why the passion was there in the Father insofar as we can follow it from the Scriptures. What we've said so far in our morning times is that There were three occasions, the baptism, the transfiguration, and the unusual passage in John 12. There were three times when when the father couldn't restrain himself and his passion for the son was made known. And we wanted to look at the reason for those three times being the occasion when the father spoke. We want to ask the question, what was behind those three outbursts, if I can call it that? We all would agree, I presume, that God created man and woman in order for him to delight in them, delight in us, 
and for us to delight in him. But things got off to a bad start. Because Adam and Eve fell to the wiles of the devil, Eve being very deceived about the goodness of God, and Adam not being sure at all that God could handle rebellion, and therefore having now to look out for his life in his own terms, he ate the tree as well. And rather than delighting in the Father, Adam and Eve concluded that God wasn't good enough to delight in when certain things happened. The Father's, the father's beauty was hidden. Satan veiled the Father's beauty. And when doubt came into the human soul, that led to an energy in all of their offspring that Jude calls the way of Cain. The way of Cain, built on a doubt as to the character of God, began to express itself when Cain saw his brother doing better than he and decides to take matters into his own hands and to kill God comes to him and says, without relationship, there can be no rest. You must wander in a way that will drive you back to me. Cain's response was, I will not wander. I will find a way to make life work without relationship. I will find a way to build my city without taking seriously what it means to reflect the character of God in all my relationships. I'm going to find some way to build civilization without community. I'm going to find some way to build society without selflessness. I'm going to find some way to build and to take on responsibilities without relationship. I wonder how many churches have found a way to make a civilization work without the quality of relationships that God requires. Is that the way of Cain? Turn now to Genesis 4. And I want you to see how this energy of Cain continued on through Cain's descendants, through Lamech, as we talked about yesterday. And I want you to see how Satan continued to be at work in a way that was designed to keep God from ever achieving his objectives of enjoying his people. That Satan was at work in a way that was designed to keep God from ever enjoying his purpose of revealing himself in a way that would draw people into worship and relationship and joy and community and friendship and fellowship and all the good things that God intended for people to have. How did Satan continue to be at work? He began with Eve, went into Adam, took advantage of the wasp that was now passed on genetically, if you will, in a moral inheritance to all of his sons and daughters and... Cain began an energy that is now in all of us. How did Satan continue that in a way that was designed to destroy the possibility of relationship? That's what I want to think about this morning for a little bit. This will be our last set of comments in preparation for understanding the three times when the Father burst out from heaven. Chapter 4 and verse 25, Adam lay with his wife again. Now we're going back in time a little bit, I presume. Adam lay with his wife again after the narrator tells the story of Cain having killed Abel and then his progeny developing into people like Lamech, where civilization was built without relationship. But going back a little bit after Cain killed Abel, we're told that Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son. He named him Enosh. And the last phrase in verse 26 is significant. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. God always has his witness. And from that verse, I would deduce what all commentators talk about, 
And that is that there are two lines coming out of the loins of Adam and Eve. There are two lines, the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. Now, the godly line of Seth was not a perfect line. There was no possibility of redemption coming out of the godly line of Seth. And God's ultimate design to have a people for himself that he could say, I'm your God, you're my people, we can enjoy all the richness of my glory, all that I designed to be enjoyed can be enjoyed. That was not possible to come to the line of Seth, even though men called upon the name of the Lord, and there was a, a certain stream of godly trust, a certain stream of concern for, the, for who God is and a certain trust in him, it wasn't perfect. But over here, we have revealed the fullness of what happens when you doubt God. Over here, we have some trust, not perfect trust, but some. And over here, we have the expression of what happens when doubting God is given full sway and Cain kills Abel and Lamech begins to build a civilization without love. We have two streams now developing. You can see that. All through the scripture, you have two streams. Sheep and goats, wheat and tares. You have two streams all through scripture. It begins with Seth and Cain. Chapter 5. We have an indication of the good development of the line of Cain. We have in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had assigned his own likeness and his own image. He named him Seth. There's the godly line beginning now. And we're told that after Seth was born, Adam, what's the next word? Lived. Look at verse 7. After Seth became the father of Enos, Seth lived. A certain number of years. Verse 10. After Enos became the father of Kenan, Enos lived, a certain number of years, verse 13, after Kenan became the father of Mahalalel, and I've often said when you don't have no idea how to pronounce a name in the Bible, just say it quickly with authority, nobody knows anyhow. <laughs> after Kenan became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan <laughs> lived, verse 16, after Mahalalel became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived, verse 19, after he became the father of Enoch, Jared that is, Jared lived 800 years. Verse 22, after Enoch became the father of Methuselah, Enoch, the word has changed. From lived to walked with God. The line of Seth was a godly line which had a couple of lovely spikes upward. A couple of people really expressed something of what was, was possible when you trust God deeply. These men lived, Enoch walked with God. I wonder what it means to walk with God. Well, one thing is clear, the two must be agreed to walk together. Amos tells us that. Another thing is clear, that God doesn't change his direction, we have to change ours. If we're to walk with him. It's possible in the godly line of Seth, even before the Lord came to give people a new heart, it's possible, apparently, looking at Enoch and looking at the whole evidence of the godly line, it's possible to see certain spikes, certain upward risings of good things where there was a level of faith that, that was wonderful in the eyes of God, but it was never sufficient to restore the kind of relationship God had in mind. There was still a flaw in even the best. Now, you have these two lines, these two streams going through humanity. Satan, the archenemy of God, looks down and says, I've got one agenda. I'm going to see to it, relationship with God becomes impossible. That's my agenda. I don't want people to find God. I don't want people to see what Jesus is really like. I don't want people to see what the Father is really like. I don't want people to see God. I don't want there to be relationship. 
That's why I think that so much of our modern culture, really, we have to ascribe to the work of the evil one when counselors focus on something other than finding God as a central purpose of all that they do. When counselors focus on repairing what's inside. When counselors focus on undoing the effects of bad backgrounds. When counselors stop short of moving toward finding God, are they not cooperating with the satanic agenda? Satan's agenda was, I don't want people to find God. If they don't find God, if they look at God and say, he's not worthy of trust, he's holding out on us, I'll find some way to use him, maybe, to solve my problems, but I will never let my problems be a basis of driving me to find him. Do we use God or worship him? I'm going to find some way to get people to look at God as utilitarian to a degree, but the real locus of responsibility stays within themselves. I'm going to destroy trust by creating and strengthening doubt. In chapter 6, Satan continues his purposes. Look what he does. Very controversial passage. I have no intention to either resolve the controversy because I can't, or even to get into the controversy because that would be pointless for my purposes this morning. But let me read you a passage that some of you are very familiar with. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and that's where the controversy develops. Who are we talking about here? The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. That's somewhat parallel to the temptation in Eden, isn't it? When Eve saw something that was to be desired, she reached out and took it. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. I will follow the internal lust of my soul. I will define life in terms of whatever appeals to me sensually. And when I look at the fruit and say, something appeals to me here, I'm going to get it. The sons of God saw the daughters of men and said, I believe there's a level of joy available to me, to me there that, is, that exceeds the level of joy I could have if I didn't go in this direction. Therefore, since all that matters to me is arranging for my joy, it makes perfectly good sense to go over here and get this. There's a way that seems right to a man, and the end thereof are the ways of life, so we think. Every time you lay down a rule with your child and say, if you cross over the line, you're violating my authority, and the child looks at that line and says, there's more pleasure to be gained from violating that line than staying in fellowship with my authority, the energy of Cain is in your child. The wasp is crawling, and you must not take it lightly. The sons of God said, I'll cross the line. I'll do whatever my sensual urges lead me to do, and they married anything they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. And then there were giants, Nephilim on the earth in those days. And these giants were the heroes of old. How strange that our heroes today are men of power, not men of character. Men of stature, not men of depth. Men of success, not men of quiet humility. Folks, most of the real heroes nobody knows. Most of the real heroes today, nobody knows. Verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every, now follow this phrase carefully, because in five minutes it's going to make a big difference to my thinking here, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. What's the next phrase? All the time. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. As he looked down on all of mankind, that's what he saw, with the exception of righteous Noah. What happened? How do people get this way? Let me tell you what I think happened. 
Satan looks and sees a godly line of Seth that could produce a man like Enoch who walked with God. He sees the ungodly line of Cain that produces people like Lamech, and he says, that's my kind of man. In Satan's Bible, his version of Hebrews 11 would highlight Cain and Lamech. The Lord's Hebrews 11 highlights some other folks. Satan says, that's my kind of man, Cain. He kills his brother, Lamech. He gets power ruthlessly. That's it. That'll do it. That'll destroy any relationship with my enemy. And he says, I want this line of Seth to become more like the line of Cain. Let me see if I can get those lines blurred together. And I believe what happened, whether through angelic, demonic intervention, whether demonically there was movement in the line of Cain as the serpent again came to the line of Seth, rather, as the serpent came to the line of Seth and moved within the line of Seth to intermarry with the line of Cain because somehow there was a beauty there that could enhance their pleasure and the two of them intermarried, the two lines became blurred and no longer do we have a clear godly line and an ungodly line. Now we have one line and it's the bad one. And God looks down and he says... This is terrible. Why? I can't have relationship with the line of Cain. When people live in that energy, it destroys relationship. On the basis of that, I I'm going to destroy every line that eliminates the possibility of my agenda. I'm going to destroy. What comes next? The flood. But out of the flood, what does God do? He saves essentially one man, obviously his family, one man, Noah. Then look what happens in chapter 8. The flood comes, as we all know. In chapter 8, we're told the story of the flood. The flood ends, and in verse 20... Verse 18, let's go to that. Noah came out of the ark, together with sons, wives, his wife, his sons' wives, and all the animals and all creatures came out of the ark, one kind after another. A new beginning. And then verse 20, and this is to me is just a wonderful couple of verses here. Pay attention very carefully to what God is saying here. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, that's in the spirit of Abel's offering. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Now this is wonderful. You must see this. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. It was pleasing in his nostrils. And now listen to what he says in his heart. Just a little bit ago... He looks down and he sees all the evil as Seth and Cain have become blurred, as relationship has become impossible, and he says, I will destroy. Now, he looks down, he sees Noah, far more importantly, he sees the sacrifice, he smells the sacrifice, and he says in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, but now look at the phrase, even though not much has changed. That's incredible. What's changed? It's the same phrase exactly as before the flood, with one little exception. The same phrase. Every inclination of his heart is evil. Well, God, before, when you saw that, you destroyed. You looked down and saw Seth getting blurred with Cain because of Satan's activity to destroy a relationship, and you said, there's no possibility for relationship now. I'm going to destroy. And now you look down at Noah. And you say, 
He's not any better. And his kids, they're no better. Why don't you destroy them too? And God says, no, something is smelling good to me here. What is it? What are you so excited about, God? Why is there passion in your soul that causes you to want to bless? You know what I think it is? The last phrase in that expression. Notice the difference? Before the flood, he said, every inclination of his heart is evil all the time. Now what he says is something very different. Every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Let me tell you what I think is on God's mind. I think God is saying this. Before the flood, it's a mess. Everybody's evil. And every thought is stained completely with evil all the time. I must destroy. After the flood, every thought is stained with evil from childhood. When man and woman get together and that little baby begins at conception, at that point, it's already spoiled. Could there not be one who would come someday who from the point of conception, it would not be spoiled? If there could be one who from childhood had none of that, that person could make a difference. I think in that phrase from childhood, the father is anticipating the birth of Jesus. Someday, someone's going to come, and I'm going to get the whole thing rolling now. Noah, you got three kids. I'm going to pick one of them, a fellow named Shem, to begin the Semites. And out of the loins of Shem is going to come Abram. And I'm going to start picturing. I think the father's is excited, getting pictures already here, kind of snapshots before the event. He looks at Abram and he says, you're going to have a kid when it's impossible. And I know what's in my mind as I get so excited about seeing to it that Sarah gets pregnant through an old man who's already dead in terms of reproductive abilities. As the Lord does that miracle, I think he's saying, not going to be long now. I'm going to get a virgin to conceive. And we're going to have the real child. It's going to make all the difference. Because Isaac, the child of promise, he doesn't quite cut it. He's a picture of someone who's gone to. And he says to Abram, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And he's saying, yeah, but what I really have in mind there is Jesus. His mind is always focused on Jesus. Here's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on and on and on. And David, man after my own heart, who kills and murders. And My father pointed out that Ahab, who sold his heart to do evil, lusted and murdered to get what he lusted after. David, whose heart was after God, lusted and killed to get what his heart lusted after. Well, big deal. Guess David isn't going to do it. Don't worship David. But he's a picture. The one who's going to come that is an aroma in the nostrils of God. And then finally, a little baby's born in Bethlehem. 30 years of impeccable living. Can you imagine being raised in that home? Can you imagine being a brother in that family? All right, who didn't make their bed? It was, it was Jesus, he didn't do it. Well, no, yeah, he, well, he did, yeah, he did it right. Oh, he always does things right. He'd be tough to have for a brother, wouldn't he? Thirty years of the father looking down and saying, "Wow, 
That's what I had in mind. And then the ministry begins. The baptism. And the father goes, yes! The transfiguration. Look at him! He's about to die. There's the revelation of my heart. You pay attention. We'll look at it tomorrow morning. Father, help us to see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, to see yourself. And in seeing yourself, to be drawn. To be drawn irresistibly. With the cooperation of wills that can do no other. As we make free choices to do what must be done when we see what you're like. To develop a passion for the Son. That is the same passion that you have in your heart. Father, teach us that all of history is centered in Christ. Teach us that all your purposes from the beginning of time to the end of time pivot in the person of Christ. Father, help us to get away from all this nonsense about exploring our souls deeply in a way that never gets us to Christ. Help us to think about our lives and our backgrounds and our hurts and our burdens and our wounds and our sins and our struggles and our tensions and our worries and our in a way that draws us to Him. Without that, we're just going to be running around in circles and worse than that, we'll be living in the energy of Cain. Now, we don't want to do that. We want you to look down and see Christ in us and therefore to be delighting in us, which is your plan. We look forward to the day when we're going to see you perfectly, fully. Well, never fully because you're infinite. But we're going to see you in such a way that we wouldn't dream of doing anything other than just worshiping and singing and loving. And Until that day, help us to see you more clearly. Use this week for that purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.